this time. Any young children that are going to the training time can meet their teachers in the back. Let us all turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, and as you turn, just to explain, though we have been going through Hebrews, uh, we're pausing during this season of Advent um, to look at a few of the psalms that express the longing that we just sang about. The desire to see the Lord come and be with His people. And in some of each of these psalms, psalms expresses a different uh, role that God fills. We saw last week, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is, uh, in Psalm 121 this week, we see the Lord as your judge. We will look at the Lord as your shepherd, the Lord as your refuge. In each of these things, God's people express a longing for what God will be to them. And as we await His second coming, we long for those same things which are fulfilled in Christ. And so this morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 50. Hear now the word of the Lord. A Psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. Your God, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth Free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. I was thinking as I was preparing this message about the attraction of courtroom dramas, whether a reality show or scripted drama, just the appeal of the courtroom scene. And part of what I think appeals to us about that is Waiting to see the truth unveiled. Waiting for that startling confession or waiting to see when all comes to light. 
But there's another show that I liked even more back when it was first on, and I hear it's being remade perhaps, Law and Order. If you never watched it, 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 the show would proceed through two halves. The first half of the show would be the discovery of the crime and the police department's pursuit of investigating and determining who had done it. And then they hand the show over, and the second half would be the courtroom drama. We already knew what, went, what happened, the truth. We knew what went wrong. We knew the guilty party. Now we want to see their guilt brought to light and convicted. We want to see the wrongs righted. We want to see justice done. And Psalm 50 is set up a little bit like that. The, the wrongs, the sins, the charges are already clear. They're already out there. Guilt is apparent. Now we need to see justice done. And Psalm 50 is set up like a courtroom drama. It begins in verse 1 with the summons, the call to appear. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And then in verse 4, he calls his witnesses. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. He goes on to list charges. God himself testifies as a witness, and above it all, he sits as judge in verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Unless we feel uncomfortable with the idea of speaking about judgment when Jesus has taught so clearly about grace and forgiveness and turning the other cheek, let us see how Jesus himself places himself in the position of, of judge in this drama in John chapter 5. Jesus says, The Father judges no one. But the Father has given all judgment to Christ, to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Psalm 50 is a song about Jesus. It's a psalm about Jesus, the righteous judge of all, through whom God will punish evil, but also deliver His people. And so let us see what Psalm 50 tells us about the kind of judge that he is. One of the first things that I want us to see is that this judge will not be bought. One of the common themes of Scripture regarding justice is the condemnation of judges who take bribes in order to look the other way and not exercise justice. And sadly, that practice has not gone away. It's continued in every culture to this very day. And in this psalm, Asaph warns us that we should not think of God as such a judge. He is not a judge who will tolerate our evil as long as we give him something in return. Verse 8, the Lord says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God was not complaining, hey, you've stopped sacrificing. You've stopped doing the things I commanded. That's my issue. No. God says, look, you're, you're offering the sacrifices. You're going through the motions. That's not the bone that I have to pick with you. He's addressing it to those who thought that the Old Testament system of animal sacrifice and offerings was a method for paying off an angry God who needed the food and the grain and the wine that people would bring to sacrifice to him. This was the view of, of many pagan religions uh, in that day and even in the present. 
that food and gifts and offerings are somehow uh, converted into, transformed into some sort of spiritual currency in the afterlife that the gods would use. And so as their followers bring them food and sacrifice, they, they need these things. And the best way to keep an angry God off your case, because if he's not getting enough gifts from you, he needs to get your attention. Otherwise, his balance is running low. So he's going to get your attention by giving you trouble. And the best way to get an angry God off of your case is to make a sacrifice, to offer something that the God needs. I doubt that any of you, I hope not, are not struggling with this particular issue regarding animal sacrifice. But I also don't doubt that the principle, this very pernicious principle, is probably still at work in your own heart. Whether it's regarding the amount that you give to the church or to the missions or to the poor, or the time that you invest in volunteering and helping, the, the vigor with which you defend and support the right causes, uh, the attention you pay to following the right rules and right doctrines, how easy is it for us to imagine that we do these things, when we do them, we are giving to God something that He needs. As if God needs money. God needs converts. God needs volunteer hours. And those who step up and help to meet God's needs can expect to be treated generously by God, the judge of the earth. What a weak God that would be. A God who needs us to supply his needs. I would not worship such a God. Would you? And so the psalmist communicates God's words in verses 9 through 13, challenging this idea. He says, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Now, how often have you heard that line quoted? The cattle on a thousand hills to communicate God's abundance. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can give us anything we need. But how interesting that when God uses that phrase, he's saying, look, I need nothing from you. I have everything I need. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I was hungry, if, even if I did need anything, I would not tell you because the world and all its fullness are mine. Or do you think that God eats the flesh of bulls and drinks the blood of goats? No, He does not. God needs nothing. There is no gift, no service, no offering that God needs from you. And a judge who needs nothing is a judge who will not and cannot be bought. You cannot bring something expecting Him to change His mind. But child of God, this is good news for you. Because the implication is that if God needs nothing from us, then we do not need to live in fear that we haven't paid enough. I, I spent many years as a young Christian falsely believing that, that God somehow needed my obedience, needed my service, needed something from me, and how terrified I was that I wasn't doing enough. But a God who needs nothing from me is a God I don't have to fear about having not paid my full debt. Whatever we have, we receive it as a gift of grace. We haven't earned it. We haven't bought it. 
Reminds me, I've seen in another country, I saw a courtroom uh, situation take place once. A situation where it was so, so, so obvious what the right thing to do was. There was no question about it in anybody's mind. And yet when it came time to render judgment, the judge called a recess. And I asked my translator, what's going on? And the translator explained, well, the judge hasn't received his bribe yet. He, he can't make his judgment until he gets his bribe. And pointed out somebody holding a little bag, handing it to the secretary of the judge. Shortly thereafter, we were called back into the courtroom. Verdict was announced. Justice was done. That's not how God works. He's not waiting to see if you've paid your debt. He's not waiting to see if you've given all that he expects you to give. He's not waiting. Everything God gives is not a transaction that he does with you. This judge is not going to be bought. And so Asaph says in verse 14, offer to God. This is the sacrifice he wants. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. What does God want from you? He wants you to thank him for what he has given you. So when we pass around the offering plate in our worship as we do each week, my hope is, my heart is that you are not um, giving out of a fear that if you don't, God will be displeased with you. That you're not giving out of some sort of desire to buy off God. Look how much I've given. Maybe God will help my, my marriage. Maybe God will help my child. Maybe God will help my health. No, God is not transactional. If you give to God, He wants it to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Look what God has given me. Look look how He has provided for me. I thank Him that He is so good, and that's why I give. And then in verse 15, to call upon Him in the day of trouble, He will deliver you and you will glorify Him. Thank Him for what He has done for you, and then look to Him, trust in Him for help in times of trouble. God's deliverance, is, His salvation is not something that He does because you've paid your bill. It's not something He owes you. In Job 41, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay Him? That is good news for you, believer. Because Jesus delivers us by grace. He's not impressed by those who think that they have something to offer, but he is ready to show grace. Listen to how he introduces his ministry in Luke chapter 4. In quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look at those that he is seeking to minister to. It's not those who are paying him off, those that have something to offer. It is the poor, the oppressed, the imprisoned, the captive. Does that sound like a savior who's expecting payment? Like a hero who's in it for the reward? Like Han Solo who's only going to help as long as he gets paid to rescue the princess? No. He needs nothing. And so he gives graciously. The next thing we need to see about this judge, not only will he not be bought, but he will not be fooled. Verse 16, to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. What he's describing here is people who talk a good religious talk. 
They can recite the words and the laws of God. They're able to explain the gospel. They participate in worship, but their lives don't bear it out. They quote God's words, but they don't follow them. And God says, look, I I know. I know how you live your life. I know what you do with your time. I know how you treat others. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you're pleased with it. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now we might get really worked up at the first ones of those. Oh, those people who approve of thieves. Those people who approve of adultery. Boo on them. In my college days and and the years after, I I worked with a campus evangelism ministry. And every spring break, we would go to the beaches where the the college students were were spending spring break. And we would just try to go up to random strangers and try to share the gospel. And God did amazing things through a lot of those conversations. But one thing I saw again and again and again, not just among the college students, but at every age, every stage of life, people I've talked to, when I asked the question, like, well, well, what are you trusting in? Like, what on what basis do you think that God would accept you? Inevitably, the most common answer is, well, I've never killed anybody. Great. The bar is like here, you know. I, I'm not a thief. I've never hurt people. Well, congratulations. You're not a psychotic serial killer. Okay, if, if that's all that God is asking, okay, you're in. But once we start to look at all that God requires and measure our life by that standard, it's a different story. I mean, look at, at how many of these charges that God brings are based on just the words we say. Not on violent actions, but on hurtful words. It's a reminder that words matter. We can feel confident or even smug that we haven't sinned in certain horrible ways, such as murder or adultery or stealing, but we are just as guilty of violating God's law when we gossip, when we slander, when we speak harshly to someone, when we unfairly criticize someone. And what the psalm has in view here is people who think that as long as they talk a good game at church, as long as they can answer the right Bible questions, as long as they put their heart into worship, it doesn't matter what they do with the rest of their time. As if God is only watching on Sunday or only listening when we start out a prayer. If God's only concern is whether or not you're showing up at church and maybe a Bible study on the side, but He's not interested in the rest of your life. That's a very human view. Of God. Verse 21 says as much. These things you've done. And I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. They interpreted God's silence as no objection to the way they're living. If God was fooled by the times and ways that we pretend to be good, then he is no different than a human. And he does not deserve our trust, let alone our worship. Why would you serve a God that can be fooled and deceived? How can you trust such a judge to deliver true judgment if he is deceived by appearances? In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord tells Samuel that the Lord sees not 
as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. We're fooled by what we see. We can be tricked by somebody who talks a good talk and acts good some of the time. But the Lord looks on the heart and knows. He is not fooled. He sees, he knows, and he cares about it. This is a warning for those who do evil, but it's also for the child of God. It is a comfort and a consolation because God knows everything about you. He knows your heart, and yet he still loves you. There is nothing about you that will surprise him. There's nothing that you have successfully hidden from the sight of God in order to convince him to accept you and may someday be exposed and cause him to change his mind. He knows who you really are, inside and out, and yet he puts his name on you and calls you his child. I want you to think of the people, the kind of people that God calls. Think of Peter. After the miraculous catch, when when Peter comes forward and realizes he's in the presence of no ordinary man, and he kneels down in front of Jesus, and what does he say? He says, go away from me. Go away from me, Lord. I am am too sinful. You don't know what kind of man I am. I am sinful. And Jesus says, no, I know. I know who you are. And I have a plan for you, Peter. Or think of Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by demons. And yet the Lord chose her to be one of the first witnesses to the resurrection. Think of Matthew, who had betrayed his nation and his people with his occupation. Simon the Zealot, who had chosen violence over trusting in God. Who Think of Paul going about killing Christians. Think of Abraham, who had worshipped pagan gods, uh, sexually abused his servant girl, had lied everywhere he went. Think of Moses. Think of Jacob. Think of Rahab. God is not looking for people who play the religion game better than everyone else. Because he's not fooled by that. He doesn't want actors. He looks beyond that and he sees and uses, almost intentionally uses the weakest, the least appropriate, the most foolish, so that through them he can display how merciful he is and how powerful he is to use such imperfect instruments to create such beautiful music. I didn't put these verses on the screen because I want you to just listen to them. Close your eyes if it'll help. Listen to this parable that Jesus tells to draw this contrast. In Luke 18, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what it means when God says, What right have you, Pharisee, who has done so many good things, to recite my words when you have been living in sin? 
Don't put on a show. Don't put on a show for God, for yourself, or for others. God is not fooled. Seek instead the mercy of the judge and imitate His mercy as well. The last thing we need to see about this judge who will not be bought and will not be fooled is that the judge will not be silenced. Verses 3 and 4 says, Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. It's, it's one thing to know that, that people are committing crimes and doing wrong. It is another thing to speak up and to act against them. Our news lately has been filled, sadly, with reports and stories of judges and DAs who are, who are not holding evildoers accountable. And those stories offend us and, and horrify us, and rightly so, because where is the justice when a judge, a judge is silent? And so the psalmist assures us that God will, He will judge the evil that people do. And yet, as we saw earlier, there may have been some doubt over that or question over that. We said, look, I, these things you've done and I've kept silent. I've been silent for a time while you've continued to do evil. Because God does not always intervene when people do wrong. God allows evil to continue for a season. And Scripture tells us that two things are happening when the judge is silent. Two things are happening when the judge is silent. Number one, he is being patient, allowing time for people to change. Romans 2, chapter 4. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When God is slow to judge evil, it shows His patience and His kindness, which are intended to lead sinners to repent. But for those who reject that opportunity, this is what is happening when the judge is silent. Romans 2 goes on. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgments will be revealed. We would love for God to judge evil right away, wouldn't we? As long as it's not our evil. When somebody else is hurting us, when somebody on the news is doing wrong, yes, God, intervene now, step in, judge! We don't want God to step back and give, give time for repentance. But He does. When a judge is slow to judge, when he is silent, it shows his kindness and his patience, leading sinners to repent. He may be silent for now, but he will not always be so. Verse 21, these things you've done, and I have been silent. So far I have been silent, I have not stepped in. And therefore you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. you know, as with other observations that the judge would not be bought and not be fooled, this is both a warning and a consolation. Note the warning in verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. If you live as if there will be no judgment on your life, as if as if you forget that God is present, as if His silence today equals approval or apathy, then the day when the judge speaks will be a day of terror. 
But for those who grieve sin in themselves and in the world, those who mourn the evil around them, and those who look forward to the return of the judge, verse 23 holds this promise. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Notice the return of the theme of of thanksgiving, which is the recognition of the graciousness of God. Now, there are two ways to respond to the grace of God. You can exploit it and see it as permission to live without consequences, and that way lives to, this leads to destruction. Or you can respond to grace with thanksgiving and order your way rightly around it. Following the way of God with a grateful heart. And that way leads to salvation. We are warned to choose the second response to God's grace. Repentance and thanksgiving. When Jesus returns, when the judge arrives, he will judge and punish all evil in the world. And he will remove it from the earth. As we are warned in Acts 17, speaking to people who are hearing the news of Jesus for the very first time, Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he command that, that overlooking, that's the patience and forbearance of God in being silent in the midst in the face of sin. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The judge will come. He will no longer be silent. And when he comes, it is imperative that we will have responded, not with indulgence, not with rebellion, not with ignorance, but with thanksgiving and repentance. But if he is a judge and he comes to judge, what does it matter if we're doing well now? Even if we were living Perfectly. Any takers on that? Perfect livers out there? That sounded weird. People with a perfect lifestyle, anyone? Bueller? Bueller? No? Then we are all in this boat of recognizing when the judge comes and speaks against evil, he must, if he is to be righteous, he must condemn and convict us. And the gospel speaks to this. John 3.16, we know it, right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.17 God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. The, The judge, Jesus, the first coming into the world was not to judge, but to save. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus because Jesus, the judge, first came in the world not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Not to condemn us, but in order to save us. And the gospel teaches that our sins were already judged and already punished when Jesus took our place on the cross. Christian, your judgment day is in the past. It's already happened on the cross. That is the purpose of the cross, that we, that He would receive our punishment. And that's the purpose of the manger at Christmas that we celebrate. In order to receive our punishment, He had to take on our form. He had to be born and live and die as a human 
if he was to take our judgment. And so as we picture again that court scene where God has summoned a crowd to witness the trial and He's called mankind before to to receive condemnation and God Himself is both prosecutor and witness and judge. There's one more figure we need in that courtroom and that is our defense. In Romans 8, we see our defense. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If God has declared us just, who can overrule Him and condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, no more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus stands in that courtroom. And as Satan, the accuser, hurls accusations, and as God calls witnesses and testifies against us, even himself, Jesus says, this one is covered in my blood. There is no condemnation for this one. His judgment already happened on me. And so now, though he will return to judge the world on the day that God has appointed, instead of dreading that day, we can look forward to it. We can anticipate it with joy. Because that day will be a righting of wrongs and our judgment is past. If we are in Christ, if we believe in Him, we will not be condemned. And we can sing as we will in a moment, O quickly come, dread judge of all. For awful though your advent be, all shadow from the truth will fall and falsehood will die in light of thee. That's what God's people long desired in the Messiah. That's what we desire to see even today in Christ and we'll see fully when he returns as judge that all shadow from the truth will fall. Falsehood will die. What a day that will be. So quickly come, O judge, quickly come now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have condemned Christ in our place and that he will return to judge and that we will celebrate because we have already been declared righteous in him and there is none that can condemn. Make our hearts right before you. Help us to ensure that we are in Christ. Make our calling and election sure because we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and order our way rightly. Remove from us all wrongdoing and build in us thankful hearts that offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. We pray this in the name of our judge, who is our Savior.